Well, this morning we're going to have another little uh, episode of Show and Tell. I have a number of books here, and we're going to take up where we were last week in Mark chapter 9. Um, but we're not really, we're not going to get out of chapter 9, I don't think, as we'll, we'll be in Mark 9, 49, and 50 primarily. And I simply want to address some questions about um, the text of Scripture, the text that we have before us. I want to, um, I want to clarify some things. I want to uh, inform you, and, and, in, and by informing you, I want to encourage you so that you're not taken aback or dismayed by some of the challenges that we find um, when we're reading translations of the scriptures. So we're going to talk about um, texts, and how we've got the texts of scripture. We're going to talk about translations and how we have them in our own language. And we're going to talk a little bit about why some are different, um, why, why, different tr why translations sometimes differ and how we can determine what's the best translation to use in any given circumstance. Um, I don't claim that we'll settle that issue and determine that there's one that stands above the rest. But um, I do want to clarify something so that, for example, when you're reading in the text of Scripture and you discover that, uh, say, the New King James Version says something a little bit different than the English Standard Version, you understand why. And you are able to evaluate that, uh, even if you're not able to determine what it was that came off the, um, the pen of Mark or Luke or whoever happened to be the human author of that text. So we're going to talk about um, translation, a little bit of a brief history of uh, translation of the Bible, very brief, uh, some translation theories, and then also um, some questions about textual transmission and, and how we evaluate the various manuscripts that are available to us today so that we can uh, compile these texts into, um, into uh, a, a useful translation for all of us to read. So my goals are simple. I want to assure you of the trustworthiness of Scripture uh, and your ability, the, 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 your ability to know what Scripture truly and really says through translations. And I want to make you aware of the, those issues that surround translations and textual transmission so that you're not uh, taken aback when people make allegations uh, on the basis of many there being many translations or many manuscripts, make allegations that um, we, we can't trust Scripture. So let's look back at chapter 9 of Mark. And what I'll do is I'll read from um, verse 38 to verse 50. We're going to cover the parallel in Luke uh, of this first text this uh, morning. And then uh, we're really going to focus in on verse 49 and 50. In verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled and with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now there are a number of challenges when we come to this text. Uh, one has to do with uh, the manuscripts that are available to us and differences of opinion that people have about what the original text is. Second issue has to do with the way in which we translate that, the, the, these texts, although that's, that's always an issue and that's, I think, relatively minor, at least with respect to verse 49. Uh, this morning I compared every single English translation of verse 49 
and uh, there's no, there's, there, there's almost, uh, they're almost all, all identical in terms of translation. There's no variation on that particular verse in terms of translation. The difference has to do with what texts one is working from. But then there's a third issue, and that has to do with how we interpret this text. What does it mean when Jesus is saying, uh, everyone will be salted with fire, and salt is good, and if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? What is the nature of that allusion or that illustration, that uh, metaphor that he uses as he challenges us to have salt in ourselves and to be at peace with one another? We discussed the, most of that text last week, but let me deal with that last problem first, the interpretive question. What are, what are we talking about with salt, and why is Jesus saying this? I think it's helpful for us to recognize first the context that we're dealing with in Mark. We have two main features of this context. The first is a context of conflict. The disciples are engaged in an argument. And you see that uh, all the way back in verse 33 and following. They engage in an argument about who is the greatest among them. We'll see that this morning in Luke as well. The second source of conflict is as they, there's, so there's internal strife within, their, within the twelve. But there's also external strife. As they see a man exercising demons, they stop him. They want to uh, prevent him from doing this work. And Jesus would have them to do otherwise, not to stop him, to recognize that he is um, not against us but for us. And so you've got conflict within and conflict without. And that really corresponds to that final phrase, be at peace with one another. But in the... Uh, more recent context, we also have this concern about sin both in our midst and uh, causing others to sin. Jesus goes on to talk about how one who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, that's well, a very grave offense. That, that would, um, it would be wor better for him if he had a, a you know, great millstone, a huge piece of stone, uh, a wheel if you will, or mill it's so big that a donkey has to drive it, to have that tied around his neck and to hurl him in the sea, that's better than to cause a little one to sin. So you have sin without, just like you had conflict without, and you've got an issue of sin within, just as you had conflict within the company of the disciples. Now he starts talking to them about their own um, challenges with sin. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it from you. And, of course, we recognize he's speaking hyperbolically. We don't see Christians everywhere in this world without hands and feet. I think because we all intuitively recognize what Jesus is saying in these hyperbolic phrases is take dr drastic action. Take drastic action against sin. And he's speaking particularly to those, those kinds of sins that are, that are, that, that kind of, that would control us, that, um, you know, let's say you have, a, you know, you could talk about someone who suffers from an addiction of some sort. They don't, in one sense, they don't willingly they're, they're, uh, engage in the addictive behavior, but rather their body is under the control of some external influence. It's still sin. And what Jesus is essentially saying is take a drastic action. This is so urgent. This is so important. Take dra dramatic action against that thing against that challenge. But the big, that big context that we have then is, is the one of sin within, sin without, and conflict within and conflict without. And we can see that the, this last um, line, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another, one corresponds to the conflict and one seems to correspond to this issue of, uh, of sin within and without. That seems to be what Jesus is talking about when he's saying be salty. Have salt in yourselves. Now, as he speaks about that, he, um, he says in verse 49, if we go up, everyone will be salted with fire. And then he goes on to say, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? And here we're, we'd be helped if we think about the many uses of salt. The many uses of salt. In Colossians 4, verse 6, in Colossians 4, verse 6, Paul uses uh, salt as a metaphor. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
And here he really keys upon the fact that salt is pleasant uh, to the taste. It has a pleasant flavor. It's good for seasoning food. And our speech ought to be like food that is well seasoned, right? That we've, um, you know, so in the idea is that, it, you know, you, so you confront somebody, right? You, you want to give them a, let's say you want to give someone a healthy meal. If, if it's well seasoned, if we, you know, if I want my kids to eat their meat and I put a little salt on it, I have a better chance of them eating their meat. If I need to give somebody uh, some correction or some instruction, if I can deliver that in a way that's salty, so to say, well-seasoned, I have a better chance that it's going to be well-received. So you see there's a way where one of salt's many uses is metaphorical, metaphorically instructive. But salt has other uses as well. It has a use in preservation, for instance, and this is really key as well. In Numbers 18, verse 19. In Numbers 18, verse 19. Here, in the context, uh, there are various laws that lay out the duties of priests and Levites. And um, we read all the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. And that phrase, covenant of salt, is strange to our ears. But when we think about the fact that salt is not just a matter of flavoring things, but it's also a preservative, we start to see that it has this, this relationship to things that are that causing things to endure. And here, God is talking about an enduring covenant and enduring signs of that covenant with respect to uh, the priests and the Levites. And so you see, you see that that use of salt becomes uh, useful in the, in the metaphor as salt... Um, relates to that particular covenant. It's a preservative. It also had a ritual and sacrificial purpose. And, and here the preservation may also be the idea. Seasoning, uh, well, something being well seasoned may be the idea. Um, but it, it is key when you move beyond those, those points, for example, in Exodus 30, verse 35, to recognize that God frequently uh, instructed the, the Israelites to incorporate salt, into their ritual worship, right? So, for instance, they were to make an altar of incense, and um, in Exodus 30, verse 35, they were to make this incense blended as by the perfumer and seasoned with salt, pure and holy, and salt became an important ingredient in the creation of this incense. Similarly, in Leviticus 2.13, we will see we can see that um, salt was important in some of the sacrificial, uh, some of the sacrifices that were offered. When the grain offering was brought, it was to be seasoned with salt. It says, "You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering." And so it does have that idea of preservation, but also for Israelites who were steeped in the sacrificial system, they would have recognized uh, the association of salt just with sacrifice and with, uh, with ritual worship in its own right. Salt also has a quality as a fertilizer. In Luke 14, for instance, we see this it used in this way, metaphorically speaking. Luke 14, 34 through 35, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Well, we've seen that before, that phrase, and we'll see it twice in Luke's gospel, but here it's applied a slightly different way. In verse 35, it says, It is no use either for the soil or for the manure pile, it is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so here, Jesus recognizes that salt also has a use in fertilizing soil so that uh, growth might occur. But if salt, uh, if, if salt has lost its saltiness, if it's no good for that anymore, it's, if it's lost its the, the saltiness, the, it's not just that you, you can't taste the salt. The idea of the quality that makes it a good fertilizer. If it loses that thing, it's not good for a fertilizer anymore, so you can't throw it on the soil or on the manure, right? And lastly, salt, uh, it, it, you know, can um, refer to destruction. I don't think this um, particular uh, metaphor is at play in Mark. But when uh, the people of Israel would uh, go and destroy a city um, in, in, uh, in, in uh, obedience to God's commandments as they drove out the Canaanites from the promised land, they would 
pour salt sometimes over the ground. As, uh, they could do it a little bit as a, you know, a symbolic act, or they could do it significantly to, you know, enough salt would destroy the soil, would make it that nothing could grow there, would make it, would render it uh, useless as a way of saying kind of like this destroyed place, let it never be built up again, let it never be used again. It's a way of recognizing the utter destruction of the Lord. I don't necessarily think that that one's at play in Mark, but it's another use of salt that was common in the ancient world that would be a little less uh, recognizable in our own day, just like they, in their world, wouldn't recognize the use of salt to melt ice on the roads, right? But salt has many uses, even in Scripture, and I think that's important to see when we think about what is being said in Mark chapter 9. When he talks about us, particularly, having salt in ourselves and being salty, if we lose those qualities that make us Christ-like, if we lose those qualities that make us distinct in the world, then we don't anymore have the, uh, the positive impact that we ought to have. Just as if salt loses any of those qualities. It doesn't have to be one or the other. If it loses its flavor, it's not good for seasoning. If it loses its preserving quality, it's not good as a preservative. If it, if it loses its sacrificial meaning, it's not good for that. If it loses its um, ability as a fertilizer, it's not good for that anymore. The same way, if Christians live a life that is marked by corruption or conflict, where we're always at odds with one another, or we're always at odds with God's will for our lives, then we are losing our quality, our saltiness. Well, what, what particular quality? It could be a whole lot of things. It could be our ability, uh, uh, you know, Christians could be thought of as a preservative in society, right? You, you look at a, you think of, think of Abraham's prayer when he interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, if you find just 15 righteous, if you find just 10, if you find just 5, I don't know if I have the proportions cor exactly correct, but he, he's looking for the Lord to spare this city on behalf of a few believers, a handful of believers, and they can't be found. There's not that preserving quality of faithful people there in Sodom and Gomorrah. In our society, there are, there's much wickedness, to be sure, but there are many, many Christians, right? And we are, to think of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, as salt and light in the world in which we live. There is a positive quality that we, um, you know, that we evidence in this world as a testimony to the truth of, uh, concerning Christ, as a testimony to the goodness of faith, as a testimony to the wisdom of the way to which God has called us. But if we are not characterized by um, the pursuit of holiness and by peace within our, amongst ourselves, these are the two primary issues at play in Mark 9, and then we can we bring to the fore a number of other things. We're not marked by those things. We're losing our saltiness as Christians. Right? So that's what Jesus is saying, I think. He's saying that we ought to, uh, to, to his disciples, to, to, to take care concerning the way in which you conduct yourselves, both in terms of your personal righteousness and in terms of, um, in terms of your uh, unity as, uh, you know, together and your, uh, your love for one another. If you fail in that, you'll be like salt that's good for nothing, but to be thrown into the fire. So that's a big part of what Jesus is saying. But it doesn't resolve every interpretive question there. Because he does say in verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. I think that what he's saying is that there is a purifying work that will take place for everyone, not just unbelievers. Now, we saw in uh, the prior context that Jesus spoke very clearly about the reality of hell, that there is an eternal fire Smoke goes up forever. The worm, which is a symbol of, uh, typical of decay, does not die. In other words, that, the, that that process does not end. There's this eternal judgment, and it's characterized by decay and by fire and, and, and torment, um, but it is clearly characterized as something that lasts forever. 
And that is not for the believers. That judgment is not something that we will go through. But there is a sense in which we all go through fire. We all go through the Lord's purifying fire in some way. That could be, you know, you, you could apply that in this life to the trials that we face as Christians through which God refines us and changes us and conforms us to the image of Christ. And so it's like passing a precious metal through a fire. It's, it's, it's um, you know, this idea of uh, being salted with fire, being preserved with fire, being, uh, being purified with fire, having the, um, uh, the marks of the old person removed in that process of, of, of purification. And that's an ongoing sanctify, uh, work of sanctification that God works in our lives. We've talked about this before. When we looked, for example, in the evenings, we went through 1 John. We talked about, um, I'll turn there for a moment, 1 John chapter 3, the um, three aspects of the Christian life. Three aspects of the Christian life. That there is a, uh, a present aspect, there's a, um, uh, you know, there's an ongoing act, act, aspect, and there's a future aspect, right? Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Here's your present fixed reality. We are called children of God, so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. There's also a present reality. We're unknown by the world, as he was unknown by the world. And this, of course, by implication, leads to various trials, as we've, we see broadly in the context of 1 John. And uh, that we can regard as part of God's purifying fire in our lives, if you will. Verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So we have this future truth. We're not yet what we're going to be. We are children of God, but we haven't yet come into the fullness of that experience. But we know, going on from there in the middle of verse 2, but we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So when Christ returns, when we see him as he is, then we will be gloriously transformed in a moment into the same glorious likeness that he himself enjoys. Not to the degree of glory, but in the quality of the glory. We'll be gloriously transformed completely and perfectly. So there's that future reality of the Christian life. But then here we have, in verse 3, the ongoing reality. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There's this ongoing reality of being purified through hope in Christ. And that's one way that we see in the New Testament, we can look to Galatians and see it as well, this ongoing transformative work that God works in his people whereby he sanctifies us. He changes us from one degree to another slowly but surely. We can say that that's the same thing as what we see in Mark. Everyone will be salted with fire. For the Christian, for the believer, that purifying work is that salting, that, that salting with fire. Does it have to be literally fire? No, no, no. It's those things that are, uh, that are um, like to fire in terms of um, uh, that, the, the, the trial and the difficulties of life and so on and so forth. So this is, I think, what Jesus is saying, that it, it will be universal, that everyone will experience that in some way. But for those, as we've seen in the prior context, who reject him, who, um, who uh, reject his word, who reject uh, faith in him, uh, they will have a different kind of fiery experience, one that is eternal, one that does not lead to an ultimate purification uh, and glorification in the likeness of Christ. Okay, so interpretive, interpretive questions. Let me ask. Let me invite you to ask questions or make comments about that before we move into some of the translation and textual questions as I present some of these these ideas. Any questions or comments about how I um, dealt with this text? All right. So 
I said I want to assure you of the trustworthiness of Scripture, and I want to make you aware of issues around translations and texts. And, and um, let's talk a bit about a brief, brief translation history, and just in an appreciative way. Okay, so there's uh, um, the the New Testament documents were written in the in the Greek language, not modern Greek, but um, an older Greek that we call Koine Greek. If you don't know that, you should know that. And the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, and not modern Hebrew, but uh, something that even uh, even their alphabet uh, is quite was quite different. Um, we call it sometimes Proto-Hebrew, and uh, we don't have those manuscripts of that original what Moses originally wrote with the characters he originally wrote. We don't have anything like that. And then some of the Old Testament was written in Aramaic, which was the language uh, of Babylon. When, during the exile. And after the exiles returned from Babylon, and most people now were Aramaic, well, at least the script was their regular uh, uh, alphabet, then at, th at that point, someone along the way, I, I think probably Ezra, maybe Malachi helped him, but um, uh, compiled the Old Testament documents, uh, the scrolls, all the scrolls into you know, a collection that was ordered and updated that into a language that people could understand in his own time, right? So the texts that we now have of the Hebrew Old Testament are based on a heritage that stretches back to that work, to, to what uh, perhaps Ezra, I can't say that of a certainty, but I, th I think it's probably a reasonable guess, Ezra and maybe um, Malachi and some, a couple other um, of the exile, returned exiles. Uh, what they what they put together after that exile, and um, now what we have is is uh, something like this. This is a text called Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia. It's a critical text. I'll talk about that in a moment, but it's based on what's called the Masoretic text, the Hebrew Bible, which was um, developed by Jewish communities during the Middle Ages. So we're talking uh, uh, 800 to 1,000 years after the time of Christ. And um, they did some further updating where they inserted vowels. So originally when the Hebrew text was written down in Aramaic, the, the vowels, the reader had to just kind of know. Imagine if I gave you a, a, a book, a newspaper, but I, I removed all the vowels. You actually would probably be able to figure out what the words are. without. Much, and, and as you get studied and practiced in it, it would be pretty easy. Um, and that's the way that, even today, if you go to Israel, they don't use the vowels when they write their, their letters. They just know how to do this. But just to clarify issues, they, they did this. So you see this process, what I'm presenting to you is this process whereby um, the Bible is being brought into a language that can be understood by contemporary people, but also with a desire to maintain fidelity to the original documents, to the original words. And this tradition carries on uh, all the way through um, church history, Christians too, doing this same thing. You can go back um, even prior to the coming of Christ uh, as more and more Jewish people came to be native Greek speakers. When Alexander the Great conquered the, conquered the known world, a lot of people started, Greek became their native language. And so they translated the Old Testament into Greek, which we call the Septuagint. We have uh, those documents, and so they, they were making it available for native Greek speakers so that they could know God's word. But the God's word, it technically speaking, is the original document that came off the author's hand. The original autographs is what we say. So what Moses wrote, what uh, whoever wrote Ezra, probably Ezra wrote, what David wrote when he wrote a psalm, there is the word of God. And the scribal work seeks to preserve, as we copy those things, as we transmit those things, as we translate those things, we seek to preserve with the most faithfulness that we can what the original text says. So that when we talk about Scripture being without error in any part, we're not saying that the English Standard Version is an, is an inerrant translation or the King James Version is an inerrant translation. We're saying that the Hebrew text that was written, that, that, that the Spirit-inspired various prophets and, and, and um, others to write, or the Greek text that the Spirit inspired the apostles and others to write, 
that was without error. It was the word of God. And then scribes and translators over time did the best they could to, with great fidelity to preserve that for us, and that's what we have come down to us. So if we say, hey, there's an, per, I disagree, for instance, with what the translator did here, that's not a, that doesn't impugn the doctrine of inerrancy. Um, it's a recognition that we're, you know, translation is an imperfect science, and there may be some disagreements there. But we owe a great debt to those who have engaged in the translation process, even if we disagree. I think that we ought to keep this in mind when we, we want to criticize a translation. The people who have done the scholarly work and labor to produce a translation for us have done a great service for us. Let me read this quote from William Tyndale. This was addressed to the Pope. Uh, Pope wanted, the Pope wanted to um, have Tyndale killed. He was an Englishman who was laboring to translate the Bible from the Hebrew and Greek to English for the English people. And he says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, I will make a boy that driveth the plow no more of the scripture than thou dost. Amazing. I will, he's, to put it in our, our vernacular, I will make the plowboy no more of the Bible than the Pope. That was his aim, his goal. He was killed for that in 1536. He was strangled to death and then burned. We can be grateful for men like Tyndale and others who risked their lives and even gave up their lives so that we might have the Bible in a language that we can understand. And we should also recognize that his focus was right. When the Bible was written, the original authors did not write it only in a style that the educated could read. They wrote it in a style that ordinary people could read and understand. Right? And so when we do, when we translate the text of Scripture, or when people skilled people you know, who are far more skilled than I am in, the, in, in languages, when they do this, there is always a goal, an aim to say, how can I best communicate to men and women who maybe haven't gone to college, maybe even don't have more than an eighth grade education, so that they can have God's word in their hands and read it and understand it. There's a secondary effect, and this I, I think actually is an example of how Christians can be salt in the world. Um, the England was largely illiterate um, before the translation of the, New, of the Bible. Um, by the time the King James Version uh, had gotten out through the, uh, uh, throughout England, it had become the most literate nation of, in Europe. Just a secondary effect. But people wanted to read God's Word, and so they wanted to know how to read. And I think that uh, English is... Uh, the dominant language in the world today, I, I don't think that would have happened had that not, that, that work of translation not happened. But it's, uh, so later on in history, just one more historical note, uh, my namesake, William Carey, he was an Englishman as well, but he went as a missionary to India. And he translated the Bible into half a dozen languages on the Indian subcontinent. He translated parts of the Bible into another 29. Really, uh, uh, the man, his job, his day job before he left for India, he was a cobbler. He repaired shoes. <laughs> but he was also a brilliant linguist, and he just worked uh, at it slowly but surely. And he then went to India and learned the languages and made the Bible uh, available for them in their tongue. That kind of work is so important in the progress of the gospel and causing uh, missionary work to go forth. So again, this is something we can be grateful for. And in our gratitude, uh, to whatever extent God allows us or gifts us, we can partake in whether it's supporting people who engage in translation work. Uh, it's been said that a person needs God's word in the language in which they sin, or they need God's word in the language in which they dream. I think that's a, a good principle, that the way we, we, we think, what, what language do we naturally think in, we ought to have God's word in that language. And so people all over the world today are laboring to translate God's word from the original languages, Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, to languages that we've never even heard of. And that's been going on for many years. All right. In our own context, though, we have, we have, such, a, we have such gluttons, in some sense, when it comes to resources in the English-speaking world. We have such a wealth of resources. We should be thankful for this. Sometimes, though, we, uh, we receive it without gratitude. So... One instance of this is we have dozens and dozens of English translations of the Bible. Now, some of them, quite honestly, aren't good. 
um, but many of them are wonderful translations. There are, there are different theories of how to translate a text. This is why we have so many. One part of it is simply about readability. When I read that quote from Tyndale, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, I will make a boy that driveth the plow no more of the scripture than thou dost. Now, nobody speaks that way today, but everyone spoke that way back then. He was saying, so he wrote that way. And when he wrote, he wrote in the language that was common to Englishmen in the 1500s. It's not common for us to speak that way today unless you're at a Renaissance fair. <laughs> and so uh, we are probably, it's, it's, a good, it's a good thing to have uh, the Bible in the language that people speak when they go out on the street. So one reason why we update our translations is to keep at pace with the way that we speak today. Um, nevertheless, there are three, there are also translation theories that kind of govern this. So one has to do, one's called formal equivalence. This is what I favor. It's essentially a literal translation, meaning that you, you try your best to retain uh, the meaning of the word in a word-for-word -word way. It's impossible to do this perfectly because grammar being what it is, it just, it's just not possible. So for instance, I, I know Sophia's learning Spanish. And I think that you uh, probably are familiar with this word, K. K. And you insert K, that, we translated that, into all your sentences. I learned this recently that uh, in Spanish, you can't have um, two verbs in a clause without separating them by K. Okay, we, don't, we, we can do that in English. It's just our, our language has different rules. So a translator, working from Spanish to English or English to Spanish, must be aware of this fact if he wants to be understood in the receptor language. In Greek, I, I, have, I have what's called an interlinear uh, Greek New Testament. This would be, if you wanted the, the most literal possible translation, an interlinear would be it. It takes the Greek text and then underneath each word it puts a, an English gloss. But it, it would be virtually unreadable. If I were to read this same text in, in, in Mark chapter um, 9, you'll hear it and you'll say, wow, that, that's unintelligible. But if I say, uh, Oh, in, in Mark chapter 9, verse 33, And they came to Capernaum, and in the house, having come to be, he was asking them, What on the way were you discussing? Well, we don't, that's not, you can't do that, right? You say, stop talking. I don't know what you're talking about. So, at some point, you've got to figure out how to arrange the words in a way that's intelligible in the receptor language. At the same time, formal equivalence, recognizing that limitation, strives in terms of vocabulary especially, to retain a word-for-word -word, uh, transition. And that's also not always possible because two words don't always have, one word doesn't always have the same meaning in every context, and two words can't be exchanged perfectly. We saw that, just an example of that, salt. When I say salt in 21st century America, there, there's, it's going to largely mean the same thing that someone in first century Israel said when, meant when they said salt. But you know there are connotations that are different because of our culture and our experience. One, you know, as we think of what salt is useful for, salting our roads, people would say, what on earth are you talking about in first century Israel? And in their case, salting a city you've just destroyed, we'd say, what on earth are you talking about? So you could just see how things start to change and words start to take on different connotations and meanings. Um, and so that's something that they must be aware of. So some translations say, well, you know, that's, that makes it difficult to communicate to the plowboy. So they embrace what's called dynamic equivalence. This is, a, instead of word for word, the best way to think about it is thought for thought. Thought for thought. And there's this, this all occur on a spectrum, right? So there's, there's not one that's fully formal and fully dynamic. And then there's another group more recently called optimal equivalence, which tries to combine the best of both worlds. Um, thinking that it can actually not just strike a middle path, but actually improve both on the readability scale and the uh, literal trans, uh, uh, translation of, of words for words. So what does that, where does that leave us? How do we choose one? Well, I favor those that, translations that are formally equivalent, essentially literal. And these would be things like the English Standard Version, the King James Version, the New King James Version, the New American Standard Bible. But I find useful 
those translations that are dynamic. This would be something like the New International Version. Um, more down that line of dynamic equivalence would be something like the New Living Translation. Um, I wouldn't use those in preaching, and I wouldn't encourage you to use it in your study, but I wouldn't discourage you from referencing it. Uh, in, 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 our, in your own study, I think it's always really a good idea to take multiple translations and compare them. Um, one scholar, Greg Beale, in fact, requires his students, requires students to consult five translations uh, before they preach a text. And he said, usually what you'll find is the differences reveal to you the, the debate. Where, where's, the, where's the debate about how to translate a text? Well, where you find the differences, that'll tell you. The optimal equivalence, this is a relatively newer translation, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, it's, uh, it's produced by uh, Lifeway, which is an arm of the Southern Baptist uh, Convention. It's actually quite good. Uh, it's become, becoming very popular. And uh, it combines formal equivalence with dynamic. I, of course, use the English Standard Version. It's what I favor. And um, I think, uh, and I plan to continue using it. But I encourage you to, to make use of, of uh, any of those that I've mentioned. Um, I think that primarily I would encourage the ESV, New King James or King James, New American Standard, um, Christian Standard Bible, and the uh, NIV. And I think um, probably in that order, relatively speaking. But they're all, they're all, I want to affirm them all. The scholars behind them, they're thoughtful. They've put a lot of effort into it. There's not some kind of conspiracy in one group or another to undermine the word of God. There may be legitimate critiques that we can render against, say, the committee behind the NIV and say, uh, you, I know you didn't intend to, um, uh, to, to, do, to do harm to the word of God, but in these instances, we disagree with what you've done. That's legitimate and that's reasonable. But it's not the same as, um, but, I, I, but I guess what I'm saying is, let's stay out of the translation wars, right? Let's stay out of those wars about there's, you know, there's one good translation. There, there is a history in our country of churches that have insisted that the King James Version is the only translation that good and faithful conservative churches will ever use. And any other church that uses another translation is, is on the road to liberalism and apostasy. And I, I just say, just don't, don't, don't enter into those debates. It's not worth it, but it's, it's, um, there, there's not a lot of, um, there, there's really no strength behind that argument. It's more of, um, it's held fast by the power of the assertion. Um, we should rather be thankful for the hard work that people do to give us translations, and we can make use of all of them. There are definitely ones that I would say never use. Don't use the, I don't remember what it's called, but the Jehovah's Witnesses translation. It's very partisan. It's, based, it's, 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 it's not based in good linguistic translation. It's based in their theology. That would be an example. So... Yes, questions, Karen. Yeah, so a paraphrase, I, I would just say it's on the continuum of, of dynamic, far down that list. So if you think of everything on a spectrum, the NI, you know, right in the middle between formal equivalence and dynamic, I think the NIV is just slightly off the middle into the dynamic side. The message would be at the far end of paraphrase. So if you think about, like, if you want the two poles on the spectrum, interlinear, which is unreadable, and the message, which is very readable, but very dynamic and really depends upon, it's, it's really an interpretation. It depends on the interpretive ability of the person who did the paraphrase. So when I get up and preach a sermon, I will paraphrase a text to help you understand it. But I don't present my paraphrase as if it's the word of God the same way as scripture is. So, you know, I, I've heard Alistair Begg quote the message. And he's like, I've referenced the message all the time in his sermons. He's not going to preach from it. It's not his primary preaching text. But it gives him a perspective. Okay, here's how Eugene Peters, uh, Peterson or Patterson, here's how he understood the text. And um, that's kind of how to use a paraphrase. So, help. So the last question that um, I, I've not left a ton of time for, but I think I can deal with it quickly. I don't want you to get buried in the weeds on textual questions. I want you to know, that just have confidence that the texts that we have is an accurate, well-preserved text. 
but you're going to find differences. So, for instance, in the New King James of the text before us in chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, and this is footnoted in most translations. There's no, there's no attempt to hide this fact. It's just a matter, there's a disagreement as to whether or not this clause belongs in the original text or not. In Mark 9, verse 39, but Jesus said, I have the right text, do not forbid, um, oh, sorry, in, in 49, for everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. That, la- that second clause is not in the English Standard Version except in a footnote at the bottom. Now, in the New King James I have here, the footnote is in the text as well, but it says, instead, some texts, uh, some texts omit the rest of this verse, right? Whereas the ESV would say, some texts include the rest of this verse. So why is the difference? Why did the committee in charge of the New King James make a different decision than the committee in charge of the English Standard Version? And it has to do with um, three kinds of, uh, uh, there are three sources. We have what's called the received text or the textus receptus. This is what um, was used during the era of the Reformation to translate. And there are a number of reasons why some might favor the received text. This is the source behind the New King James and the King James. Those who favor the received text, one of the reasons is it's a confessional reason. There's a belief that God preserves his word. And there, the, the, there's a, there's a, they reason on the basis of that. I believe that God preserves his word too. But they reason on the basis of that, that that means that in every age, the right text had to be preserved. The correct text had to be preserved faithfully and completely. I think that second conclusion is not warranted, but I have brothers and sisters in Christ who are faithful believers who say, no, that's, that's, uh, that's our stance. The received text is the right text. There are other reasons why people favor that, but a lot of people who choose the New King James choose it because it's based on the received text. But then there's what's called the majority text, which says when we look at all the manuscripts that we have, when there's disagreement, we're going to go with the majority of the manuscripts. What do the majority say? It's not quite that simple, but that's a helpful way to present it. And then there's what's called the critical text. These, this is a Greek New Testament and a, this is a, old, a Hebrew Old Testament. They're based on what's called the critical text. And the critical text means that scholars have a way of evaluating different variations in manuscripts to determine what's most likely the original text. They have a methodology that they work through. You see, when before the printing press, when scribes would copy a text, imagine the Beatitudes. You're going through, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the blessed are the blessed, and you're, you're, you're looking at the text and you're copying and you skip a blessed. Really easy to do. And you move on, and now you have a variant that this scribe just produced that has only eight Beatitudes and not nine. Okay? And that goes into the libraries and is preserved and now scholars a thousand years later come along and they look at this variant and they say well which one's correct and they can pretty easily determine well we've got 99% of the, the, the manuscripts have all nine beatitudes just this one has eight we can explain the, the mistake an honest mistake that was made by the scribe and so we're going to go with the, the you can just see that methodology whereby you say here's how we determine most of the time, those variations are, are minor. They, 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 they make no major impact on the text. They're like ours today, where, it's, where the addition of um, every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt doesn't really add, if you put, insert it, doesn't add a whole lot of meaning to the big picture of, the, of Mark 9. You take it out, it doesn't take away a whole lot of meaning. Its importance is really minor, right? And that's 99% of instances where you have a variant. The importance is either really minor or it's really easy to make the right decision. The critical text is based on this process of, of making these decisions. So texts like the ESV, the New American Standard, are based on the critical text. And the, off the top of my head, there are just a handful of instances where I think people get really bent out of shape about the disagreements. There's, you know, there's, we can talk about some of those, but two that come off the top of my head, 
There are eight verses at the very end of Mark's gospel that may, the people disagree whether they belong. There's verses in John 8 about a woman caught in adultery, which a lot of people in the, crit the critical text would say that doesn't belong. Uh, the, text, the received text would say, nope, that belongs. Let's not get into those debates in such a way where we divide and we, we have disunity over it. It's a very hard decision to make, but really those are the two, there's a couple others, but the two main texts that come to mind where this becomes a, actually a significant issue. So what I want you to appreciate is how well preserved this document is. God told us that the authors of scripture were inspired and carried along by the spirit as they wrote down the words of, of scripture. He did not tell us that the scribes who made the copies and the translators who made the translations would be carried along by the Spirit. And this conforms to God's normal pattern of working in our world. A miraculous event, say, example, the virgin birth, is followed up by very normal uh, events that are typical with the providence of God. Her pregnancy was normal. The delivery of the child was normal. The raising of the child was normal and unmiraculous uh, most of the time. And yet the conception was miraculous. The production of the, of, the, of the Bible was a miraculous work of the Spirit of God. The preservation of the Bible was ordered in the providence of God. And it's, we, don't, we can't say with 100% certainty that every single word and phrase that we have in our translations is perfectly accurate and say that King James, the ESV, or critical texts are, are Masoretic. But we can say 99.9% .9 of the time we are dead certain in those few instances that we have some questions. They affect no doctrine, no cardinal doctrine, of, uh, really no doctrine at all of the Christian church. They don't undermine our faith. And, um, and God in his providence has permitted that we have those things. If I might venture to suggest in closing, I think as a way to test our ability to love one another in unity and not insist on our own way. Um, all the time. Not insist on always being right over things that aren't so important. So um, hopefully that explains why sometimes you encounter texts that are different and uh, how, to, how to respond to them. And uh, if you have questions about specific texts or any of that, um, I'm, I'm uh, prepared and ready to, to talk more about that. Um, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you indeed are perfect, and when you speak, your words are perfect. We thank you that in your providence that you have given faithful men and women who have labored to preserve your word faithfully, and uh, not just in the works of translation and copying, but also in the work of teaching, teaching children, teaching adults, about uh, sharing the gospel with others, all of these ways in which your word is preserved. We thank you, Lord, that in your providence you have provided such people, uh, salty people and people who are light to this world. And may we be people like this as well, O oh Lord, who preserve your word by faithfully proclaiming it and sharing it and by living in accordance with it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.